Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. So one of the reasons you may think you're no good at math is because some humans have been pretty much crushing it at math for a long, long time. So the bar got set pretty high pretty early. The Greeks were laying the foundations for trigonometry 120 years before Jesus was born. Over in China, they had figured out pi to the fourth digit by the year 250. And in 665, an Indian named Brahma Gupta devised a way to, quote, interpolate new values of the sine function, which means by the 7th century, we're already well into concepts that my math major wife probably can't simplify enough for me to understand. Here's a question, though. If we humans are so clever, how is it that up until the 17th century, everybody thought that rotting meat spontaneously produced maggots? All Francesco Reddy had to do to change that was to put a chunk of sirloin in three glass jars, seal one, put gauze over another, leave the third one open, and what do you know? Turns out the maggots are drawn to the spoiling meat from the outside rather than coming into existence mysteriously from within it. Did you all still believe that? What people? (laughs) And how did we assume that large objects fall faster than small ones all the way up until 1589 when Galileo thought just to drop a big ball and a small ball from the leaning tower of pizza and see, pizza and see they hit the ground at the same time? (laughs) And how could it have taken nearly a thousand years after Brahma Gupta did his sign values interpolation thing in India for an English physician to figure out what pushes blood through our bodies by, I kid you not, poking the heart of a dead pigeon with his index finger? Well, an experimental psychologist named Adam Mastioni says the reason it took us so long to make these much simpler discoveries is because of something called the illusion of explanatory depth. We expect higher math to be difficult, so curious people concentrate their attention on it very intensely. But other things seem self-evident to us, so we just assume we know why they are as they are. We assume we understand them until some wise person, maybe in a single simple gesture, exposes our assumptions for the illusions that they are. I'm not sure Jesus is ever more rabbinical than he is in our gospel text for today. Do you? Some people are trying to entrap him. They say, teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Well played, right? You should always butter up your mark a bit before you catch him in your snare. Tell us then what you think, they say. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Now the illusion of explanatory depth here is that this is a story about paying taxes. While your Bible may well have a confident heading above the passage that says something like the question about paying taxes 
And lots of Christians over the centuries have wondered about this very question. Whether it was Christian pacifists not wanting their money to support the waging of war, or Christians opposed to abortion not wanting to finance a procedure they believe to be immoral. But Jesus, with the elegant simplicity the wisest rabbis are known for, turns a question about taxes into the question no one thought or cared to ask. It's the question of the proper place of money in our lives. Maybe more specifically, in our hearts. What makes the scene so compelling to me is that it's so visual. For once, Jesus doesn't tell us a story, does he? He asks his questioners to show him a coin. Then he asks whose head is on the coin and what's the title of the owner of that head. The entrappers, of course, fall into his trap and say it's the emperor. Give, therefore, to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, he famously replies, and give to God the things that are God's. Now, I'm no Martin Scorsese, but if I am filming this scene, it starts with a close-up of that coin glimmering in an open palm, and then the camera begins to back away. The coin in the hand gets smaller as we see the rabbi and the group that are huddled around him from above. Soon the frame includes the whole dusty square in Jerusalem, people going about their ways, oblivious to the fact that 2,000 years from then, people will still be unpacking what's happening across the street. Before long, we see the whole city of Jerusalem. The coin, the hand, the individual figures become too small to make out. But the zoom has just begun. Now we see all of Palestine, the Red Sea and the Mediterranean flowing in from the south and the west and then growing smaller themselves as the camera drifts on out into space where the whole spinning blue globe of the earth becomes visible. On and on it goes, right? Until the earth and our solar system shrink to invisibility just as the coin and the hand and the people in Jerusalem did a few seconds prior. You get the idea, right? It is money that Jesus is putting in its rightful place, not his questioners. They ask him about taxes. He says, give the emperor the things that are the emperor's. Namely, this tiny coin in this little backwater Roman province. Then he says, give to God the things that are God's. And however much of the whole expanse of reality that our tiny brains can comprehend gets set next to that sad little coin within them. The question changes from, should we pay our taxes to what belongs to God? And that question carries within it a more difficult one for us. Why then do we give so much of our hearts and our souls and our minds and our strength over to the emperor and his coin. It's as if someone just dropped two objects from a tower or poked a pigeon's heart, and we suddenly see the world for what it is and our illusions for what they are. You might remember from economics class that money has no actual intrinsic value. For anything to have economic value, it has to be scarce and it has to be wanted. That's what supply and demand means, right? Well, Jesus has been trying to pull us out of lives in which our hearts are so consumed with the desire for things that are scarce. 
In so many ways, he invites us to step out of the emperor's world and mindset and into the realm of God. The kingdom of heaven is what he calls it sometimes, which is a realm of gift and grace and abundance. He told us to live like lilies and sparrows, not to toil and not to spin and not to worry about the scarce thing we might lose our grip on tomorrow. I even think it shows up in that seemingly horrible parable from last Sunday that Paul had the sense not to preach on. You remember it. It's the one about the wedding banquet that people dismiss their invitations to. One goes back to his farm. Another goes back to his business. They can't believe that a banquet that's spread out for free offered not only to them, but absolutely every saint and sinner, the good ones and the bad ones, who's to be found in the city streets, they can't believe that a banquet to which everyone is invited could be the place where they would learn most deeply who they are in the eyes of God. So they, just as we do, I think, every single day, return to the world of money and scarcity where one's worth is not a gift, but something one must prove, usually in comparison to somebody else. Now in the story, it's the king who casts out the guests who won't join the party into outer darkness where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth, remember? But friends, uh, look around. All that wailing, all that gnashing of teeth is real enough in this cruel old world right now, isn't it? Read your Sunday paper. You won't have to reach page two. But the wailing and the gnashing of teeth is not the result of the judgment of an angry God. It's the all-too-familiar sound of a world in which we just refuse to live in the realm of divine grace and gift and keep forging our identities in the fires of money. I'll admit it's kind of fun to read these stories as if they all end with Jesus winning the rabbinical smackdown, dropping the mic, walking away from those losers who didn't have the sense not to pick a fight with him. But the one thing we know about Jesus is that he, maybe of all the people who ever lived, doesn't give a withered fig tree about winning. He didn't care about being right. He wanted to show people the way things actually are, which is nothing like the explanatory illusions we so often live by. I think Jesus still calls us to drop the illusion that the things that matter most in our lives are scarce and that our true worth is not a gift and a given, but something that each of us has to go out and earn for ourselves. These are the illusions the empire of money depends on, friends. Jesus calls us away from that realm because it's a realm that's just way too small for the abundant life the human heart was created for which is life at that banquet at which an invitation has been extended to every last soul that's ever been. A table that's not the size of a coin or a dollar bill, but as vast as everything in creation that's not Caesar's coin. Just remember, it's a hopeful invitation, not a stern command. Even before us today, Jesus simply lays down that tiny coin alongside all that belongs to God, and says, the choice is entirely yours, my friend. But I think I'll take the party. Caesar can keep his coin. 
Just know I'll be saving a seat just for you in hopes that one day you'll see the realm of money for the illusion that it is and step off into the banquet of God's glorious everything else. Amen. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.